0: Well, welcome to Lex City Church. How you guys doing out there? All right, we're awake, we're alert. Welcome those of you watching online, LexCity.tv, Facebook, YouTube. So glad that you're with us today as well. Uh, my name's Zach, I'm one of the pastors here. And like you guys heard, Pastor Brian mentioned earlier, they are recovering from COVID at home, but doing really well. Thanks for all the prayers um, for that. Looking forward to a series he's starting next week called Better Decisions, Fewer regrets. If you want to follow along with the message today, you can go to LexCity.info, click on message notes. You can actually fill on your own notes there and save it if you would like. And so, well, as we all, especially this week, try to navigate the ever increasing complexity of life in America today, I want to lay out a specific challenge for us today as what I would call church people. And so if you're a church person, you're probably here. Maybe you used to be a church person, you're no longer a church person, and I'm gonna kinda of explain potentially why a little bit of that today in the message. And so, if you were raised in a church growing up, maybe like I was, you found on pretty early on that becoming a Christian is actually pretty easy. I mean, it costs virtually nothing, right? I mean, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the price has been paid, we put our faith in, in Jesus, and then we're Christians. That's what makes it so amazing. The price has been paid, you simply receive the free gift of salvation and forgiveness, and then you can call yourself a Christian, I can call myself a Christian. Becoming a Christian is easy, but when you open up the pages of the Gospels and you open up um, the the writings of the Apostle Paul, and you read the letters there, you don't read anything about anybody becoming a Christian. In fact, as some of you might know, first century Christians didn't call themselves Christians. Non-Christians called them Christians. And it was probably a, a slur, a, a, a derogatory term at the time, and it literally meant one associated with Christ or a Christ one. And it wasn't like a static label like we call ourselves, I'm American or I'm Canadian. It was actually indicated a way of life. And the term Christian only shows up in the Bible three times. And so Luke, who described the events following the resurrection of Jesus and actually documents the first time this term appears in history in the metropolitan city of Antioch. Here's the interesting thing, though. By telling us how the label originated, Luke actually clarifies what it meant or what it meant back then, maybe not not what it means today. And so here's what Luke says in the book of Acts. It says the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. But this raises a question for us disciples. So who were the disciples? He's not talking about the 12 apostles. This referred to a broader group of people. In fact, in the Gospels, the term disciple always referred to Jesus followers. So people, people who publicly associated themselves with Jesus. And then at, before the crucifixion and people who followed the teachings of Jesus after his resurrection. And now one of the reasons we think the term Christian might have been a derogatory term is because first century followers of Jesus were accused of being part of a cult or what they called a sect. Specifically, they were referred to people who were part of a Nazarene sect. And the reason they were, of course, were called Nazarene sect is because they followed a teacher who was from the city of Nazareth. And there was something different about these people that set them apart from their idol worshiping friends in Antioch. And so the citizens of Antioch, they felt pressed to come up with a name for these people, and they couldn't just call them disciples because a lot of teachers, a lot of philosophers, a lot of rabbis had disciples back then. They came up with this term, and they've called the followers of Jesus, or disciples, as Christians. And this is challenging for us. It's challenging for me. You may be comfortable claiming the badge or the title of Christian the way we think about it in today's terms, but here's the question I want us to wrestle with. For a few minutes today. It's easy to say that I'm a Christian, but am I a Jesus follower? Lex City Church, our, our our mission statement is to know, follow, and share Jesus. Are we following um, or are we simply just believing in? Is it really, is it just the know part, or do we really follow this? Am I following his example or am I just trying to be a good example? And this is a terrifying question because it's terrifying because I can define and redefine what it means to be a Christian until I'm fine. You can redefine and define the term Christian until you're fine. We can all do that until we feel fine about our approach to faith right now. And the reason we can do that is because neither Jesus nor anybody in the Bible clearly defines what it means to be a Christian, but Jesus' follower... That doesn't really need any defining, does it? Becoming, Christian, uh, becoming a Christian is easy. It won't cost you anything, but following Jesus, it will always cost us something. And it costs some people more than others. And here's what you need to know, and here's what I know, and here's what history tells us. The ones that it costs the most are the ones that have made the most difference. Jesus came to earth to, to introduce the kingdom of God to earth. We know he was the king. We know this. He was the king who came to reverse the order of things. And so to follow Jesus then and to follow Jesus now requires us to live a different way to some extent to be countercultural. And this was certainly the case in the first century. And Jesus made this abundantly clear right out of the gate in his most famous, most quoted, but probably least applied sermon that he ever gave. It's a sermon on the Mount. And it starts in Matthew 5 and it says this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began, he began to teach them. When I think about this story, I, this crowd had no idea that they were at the greatest sermon that's ever been given. They were literally spectators. They got to witness the greatest sermon ever. So maybe think about times in my life when I was at something that maybe at the time I didn't know was historical. Think about like the greatest concert you've been to. Think about the greatest sporting event you've been to. Think about something that you witnessed that you maybe didn't know at the time, but it was gonna become an historical moment in time. For me, as I thought of this, I thought of several things. I went back to 1992. Where are my 90s kids at? All right, there's eight of us, great. So so back to the 90s, I was 15 years old, it was 1992, and I had tickets with some friends to an incredible concert. It was the MC Hammer Too Legit to Quit Tour concert. <laughs> it, too Legit to Quit, hey, hey, you guys remember this? Some of you do, okay. So I went to this concert. I didn't know at the time that I was going to witness amazing dancing, amazing singing, the patch, the lights, of sound. It was incredible. I look back on that now, and I was like, man, that was historical, all right? So then fast forward to a few years ago. I lived in Houston, Texas, and we were hosting the NCAA uh, tournament, March Madness. The final four was going on in Houston, Texas. And at the time, your lead pastor, Brian Clawson, at the time, was a big North Carolina basketball fan, okay? He's since been like rehab. Now he's a Kentucky Wildcat fan. It's okay, okay? But at the time, he was a North Carolina Tar Heel fan, and so... I knew at the time it was going to be North Carolina and Villanova in the final. And so I called him. I said, Brian, if you can get here to Houston, I will get tickets for the final game. He's like, I'll be there. So he drives, meets me there. We have tickets. We're in the nosebleed, of course. And so, but this game is incredible. It's amazing. It goes down as one of the greatest basketball games in the history of the the tournament, okay? And so he's a big Carolina fan. So this is what happens at the end of the game. We're really, really excited. Watch this. so that happens. There's four seconds left. Brian and I are freaking out. The whole crowd's going wild. Brian's in tears of joy. It's an amazing moment. We're thinking, well, surely it's going to go to overtime. What could possibly happen in the last four seconds of this game? It could never happen. And then this happened. And Brian's tears of joy turned to different kind of tears <laughs> in that moment. He's at home, Brian. I'm sorry to bring this up again, but this was an incredible, incredible game. And we, I think in that moment, we knew it was pretty historical. I say all that to say, as amazing as those two events were in my life, they pale in comparison to the people that were sitting there in this large crowd hearing the greatest sermon of all time. A sermon that would shape Western civilization and would reshape cultural values and cultural norms. So Jesus stands up in front of this large crowd and he turns everything upside down. He hits, he hits on topics like love your enemies, give away your stuff. When somebody asks for a little, give them even more. And when you give it to them, don't even ask for it back later. Go the extra mile, turn the other cheek. He talks about how you can't be right before God if you're not right with other people. And in fact, he talks about how back then people would go to temples to make a sacrifice. They would bring something to sacrifice. And he shares how back then that if you were there and you realize all of a sudden that, you know what, I don't have, someone has something against me at home. Maybe it's a brother, a sister, a neighbor, a friend. You're supposed to leave your sacrifice there at the temple, go all the way home, spend the time to talk to them and make it right before you can go back and be right before God. He talks about things like stop staring at the little speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and clean the log out of your own so you can now clearly see to help your brother with the speck in his own eye. He says, you've heard it said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but not anymore, not in my kingdom. Blessed are those who curse you. Everything he said, it was epic, it was disturbing. He literally turned their entire value system upside down. And then he kind of drops the mic and he heads to Capernaum and this is what happens. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. It goes on in the next chapter, the first verse. And when Jesus came down from the mountaintop, mountainside, large crowds followed him. I mean, this was a street party of all street parties, like nothing they had ever seen before. I mean, John the Baptist was kind of like the warm-up act. He had thousands and thousands of people, but surely people heard Jesus and they said, he spoke with one who had authority. Could this maybe be the Messiah? Could this be the Messiah? And then a man with leprosy shows up when he's done preaching and he steps right in front of Jesus. It says a man with leprosy came and knelt before him. You've got to be thinking like he just gave this incredible sermon. This is kind of a downer now. What's this guy doing here? People begin to kind of move away. They're making space. They don't want to get close to him. They're going, what is Jesus going to say? How is he going to respond? And he knelt before him and he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus had just talked about, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Big talk, right? So what's he going to do? Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. And he said, I am willing. He said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. And the crowd, like at the end of the basketball game, they go wild. They go nuts. I mean, this guy is walking the talk. He's doing for others. This is like nowadays when you're going by and you see someone holding up a sign, this was like Jesus going over and giving him his entire wallet to help the family out with the sign. This is, he stopped and helped. He is the real deal. He's actually going to live out these extraordinary values right in front of people. They don't seem like they would work in that culture, but here's a guy that's going to do it anyways. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, the mood changes. And what happens next in scripture is kind of completely lost on us, but it's not lost on the people that were there witnessing this. He didn't elaborate because he didn't need to because everybody that was there understood about what was gonna happen next and what it meant. And everyone there, the first century readers, they got it, they felt it. I would kind of compare it to uh, like the 17-year-old guy and he is telling his friends, his buddies a story. And the story goes, he's in his, the basement of his girlfriend's house, they're watching a movie. Maybe you've been there. And then what happens the lights flick on and the dad is standing there, right? And the, the, the boyfriend, the girlfriend is standing there and they're asking, and so he's telling his buddies this story and he's not, he's, not even, he's not even asking in the moment. The question isn't how do you feel in that moment? We all know. As a guy, when the dad walks in, you feel terrified, okay? And you should, you feel terrified. Their question they, happened, they asked next was, what happened next? And that is kind of what we're about to experience in the rest of the story right here. Everything is good. You get this great sermon. He just healed this guy with leprosy. And then suddenly the lights come on and it's our dad moment here. And Matthew didn't have to tell anybody what was going on because everyone felt it. But they're going, what's going to happen next? And here's what happens. In verse 5, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. And the world stood still. This was beyond awkward. We know he said, love your enemy. Do for others go the extra mile. Those are great hashtags. But surely these, those one-liners don't apply to this guy. I mean, healing a Jewish leper is one thing, but dealing with this guy is a whole other thing. And I'm going to give you the context of why I'm saying that right now. It's Because we don't feel the gravity yet. We don't feel the tension in the moment, but the people watching did. Here's a little background. About 100 years before this event, a Roman general, Pompey, enters the city of Jerusalem. He desecrates the temple and the Holy of Holies by giving himself a self-guided tour. So basically, Pompey, he walks in, he shoves the priest out of the way, he goes in, he takes that the big self-engineered curtain and he pulls it aside and he goes from the outer court into the God chamber where no one else had ever been besides the high priest because he had this curiosity because he said, you know what? Who is this Jewish God that they are worshiping? that is better than our pantheon of gods, who's so good that he, he says he's the only God. And so he goes inside this curtain and he expects to see something. Instead, when he walks in, he's disappointed because there's no God, there's no idol, there's a golden table, there's a candlestick, there's about 2,000 talents of gold, but no God. And he's probably thinking to himself, these crazy Jews, they built this extraordinary structure, this physical structure for a God who has no physical representation. I mean, what good is a God you can't see? And then he left, but he didn't leave alone. He left with thousands of Jewish slaves in tow. And Judea and Galilee in that moment were essentially annexed into the Roman Empire Galileans and Judeans lost their independence again and they're forced to pay taxes to their pagan conqueror. And years later, another general shows up, a guy named Crassus. He goes into the temple. He steals all of their wealth, all the temple taxes, everything that he could find, he takes with him to Rome. And then in 40 BC, Herod the Great was crowned king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. And of course, the problem was Herod wasn't even Jewish. And not just that, He had murdered rabbis. And one of his sons is responsible for executing John the Baptist, who was a folk hero among the working class. And then when Jesus was somewhere in his 20s, Rome commissioned Pontius Pilate to be the governor of Judea. And Pilate is giving credit for introducing crucifixion into the Galilean and Judean landscape. He was constantly offending the Jews on purpose. He too stole money from the temple treasury. In fact, Pilate was so cruel that he was actually recalled to Rome because of his violence to the Jews and the violence to the Samaritans. And eventually he committed suicide. The point of me saying all that is simply this that anything and everything associated to Rome was tainted it was tainted in the jews mind there was just too much history but it got worse this was not a common soldier this was a centurion asking jewish people for help this is a man who earned his rank and authority through violence he obeyed without question he obeyed without conscience centurions were severe disciplinarians and they actually flogged their own men and sometimes even executed their own soldiers And we know from history that this centurion was not even local to the area. He came from outside of there because they didn't even have a centurion there until later. And people outside or people in the regions around Galilee, they considered the Jews to be pretty much a detestable race. They'd resisted Hellenization. They clung to their ancient culture and their strange customs. And they refused to join the rest of the world. And people from neighboring regions considered Jews to be racist. I mean, after all, they considered all non-Jews off limits. They called them Gentiles, anyone that was a non-Jew. They weren't allowed to marry those types of people. In fact, you may remember this. Remember Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? When he spoke to that woman, do you remember how she responded? She was shocked that Jesus, a Jew, would even talk to her. That was the relationship between a first century Jews and outsiders in a nutshell. Remember Peter, the Apostle Peter? He openly admitted that he had never stepped foot inside of a Gentile home. He would never have done that. So it's no wonder that people from the border regions consider Jews to be estranged and to be odd and to be just a detestable race. And so this was the context of a centurion walking in. This was the tension. This was the emotion. This was the disgust that hung in the air the afternoon on the outskirts of Capernaum as Jesus is stopped by this centurion and he asked him for help because this centurion represented everything that Jesus had a right to hate. I mean, personally, nationally, ethnically, religiously, it was all wrong. He had blood on his hands. He had Jewish blood on his hands and now he needs a favor? Think about your life. Have you been there? Think about examples like, what, you want a job recommendation from me? After the way that you treated me? After the way that you treated the rest of our staff? You want us to now say something good about you to another employer? How about this one? You want a second chance? This is like your third second chance. You want to borrow money? You mean you want to borrow money again? You didn't pay me back from the last time. Or maybe this one more recently, for a lot of us, you want to come to Christmas after the way you treated us the last holiday, you want to come again? Oh, you need to stay you need somewhere to stay for a while. Last time you stayed it was three months, you didn't offer to pay bills, and he never said thank you, but you want to stay again? I was thinking about this this week, and I feel like it's very true that for most of us, we are more willing to do something good for a complete stranger it feels good to hand someone money it feels good to do a good deed for somebody right but if i want you to do something good for someone that's hurt you or someone that's hurt that someone that you love or they remind you of someone that hurts you it's really difficult to help those that have offended you becoming a christian is easy salvation is free It'll cost you nothing. Following Jesus, moving beyond what's reasonable, moving beyond what's expected, that's difficult. It's unnatural, it's beyond natural, it's almost supernatural, and maybe that was the point. In Luke 6, it says, and if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you do good only to those who do good for you, there's nothing unusual about that. That brand Of love is very commonplace. That brand of love keeps us sequestered behind our brands. It keeps us with our own tribes. So there in the story, you have the Jews, the people. You have Jesus, and then you have this centurion. And the question is, what would he do? They'd heard what he preached, but what would he do? Perhaps you know, you read the story, and once you read the end of the story, then I have a decision to make, and you have a decision to make. We have to decide, are we, willing to, are we willing to follow Jesus? Are we content to just know Christ? Are we content to just simply being Christian? Matthew 8, 5, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. The next verse says, Lord, he said, my servant is at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Irony of all ironies in this verse. Hang on, hang on. So suddenly, you're concerned about someone suffering terribly? Are you kidding? As a Roman centurion, you personify suffering terribly. You cause suffering for a living. We've suffered our whole lives because of you and your nations and your armies and your legions. For as long as we can remember, we've suffered at the hands of people just like you. And now you want us to relieve the suffering of someone important to you when you've never done that in return to us? In fact, you've done the opposite and Jesus could have gotten personal with the centurion. He could have looked back at, at the empire and said, look at me, thanks to you, the former emperor, my mom had to give birth to me in a dirty stable. I mean, granting this man's request, it would have potentially been dangerous for Jesus. He could, have, he could lose the crowd. He could lose the patriots. He could lose the working class. What rumors, when rumors of this spread, it could by, be the end of the mission. But Jesus had come to introduce a new kind of kingdom, a new morality, a new ethic, a new way of seeing the world, and maybe more importantly, and especially this week as we reminded, a new way of seeing everybody in the world. And so with keeping with his own teaching to illustrate what he had just taught, he chose to do good for someone who represented an empire who had done unimaginable harm to his people, his nation, and his family. And knowing even later in the story, that same empire would oversee his own crucifixion. This is how he responds. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Would you like me to come to your house and heal him? In that moment, the Jews had to be like, whoa, Jesus, those were great words, but this is too far. This is too much. And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. And the crowd was like, finally, something we can agree on. You don't deserve that. But the centurion, in an amazing expression of faith, says this, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. And then he says, Jesus, you and I aren't so different. Like you, I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell this one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. So no, I don't need you to come to my home, Jesus, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And then Jesus, again, to the shock of the crowd, commends the centurion on his faith, and he responds. He says, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. Then I think he kind of pauses and looks over the crowd and smiles, and then he goes and has lunch, At Peter's house and once again the crowd is stunned he spoke as one who had authority and he's matching his words with his actions these aren't just hashtags he actually expects us to literally do good to those who haven't and won't do good to us he expects us to literally do good for those who don't look like us or live like us he expects us to do good for people who don't even like us So back to us, if you consider yourself a church person, if no wonder that we reduce our faith to a label, right? It's no wonder we're content to take notes, feel bad about ourselves for a moment, and then just retreat to what's comfortable because it's easier to be a Christian than it is to be a Jesus follower. It's easier to do good for a stranger than it is to do good to someone who's offended us. It's easier to love people. And here are these four things because they're really important in the life of our country right now. Easier to love people who look like me, who think like me, who live like me, and who agree with me. It's easier to be a Christian than a Jesus follower. And if that's what you choose, if that's what we choose. That we. That's what I choose. We will contribute to the challenges that we are wrestling with as a nation today. And I'll tell you why, because if you don't choose to follow Jesus, you'll be content to simply just believe. You'll believe all the right things, you'll believe it. You'll believe this, you'll believe that all men and women are created in the image of God, that they're all created equal, that they have intrinsic worth, that they have divinely assigned value. You'll agree with C.S. Lewis when he made the extraordinary statement that there are no ordinary people, no mere mortals. You'll believe from the bottom of your heart that a person's value and dignity is not assigned by men, it's assigned by God. God but if we've not decided to follow Jesus, it just ends there. It ends with correct belief. If we don't decide to follow Jesus, we will not act. We will not act on what we claim to believe when it costs us something. And right now, in particular, we will not react. We will not react when we see people treated unjustly, unkindly, or unfairly. Here's the interesting part. Apparently, Jesus saw this coming. Apparently, Jesus saw us coming. Apparently, Jesus saw me coming. He seemed to anticipate a generation that would be content to know but not to do. In fact, Jesus reserves his final words, his harshest statements in the Sermon on the Mount. For those people who would hear and not do, who would agree but not take action, for those who would be content to sit and listen and nod but refuse to follow. Think about this. This is amazing. This is his closing statement. He says, But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. Everyone who heard this sermon, who was moved by this sermon, even agreed with parts of the sermon, when it gets down to real life, when it gets down to the emotional moments where it's just too much to think about following through with what we just heard. He said, The person who hears these words of mine and refuses to put them into action is a foolish man. Specifically, they're a fool because he or she will have fooled themselves. They will fool themselves into thinking that they are better than they really are, that they possess something they really don't possess. And it goes on to say this in the same verse It's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. You remember, the house looked great, but how does it end? Then the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So I want to leave us with this today. The men and women who make a difference in the world are not the men and women who believe right. They are the men and women who act and react when something isn't right, even when it costs them. Here's my invitation to you, my invitation to myself today. Let's not be content with Christian. Let's not be content to just know. Let's follow Let's continue to do good for those who can't or won't do good for themselves. And then when the centurions in our world show up, and they will on a weekly basis, they will on your Facebook, they will on your Instagram. When everything in us recoils at the thought of leveraging our resources, our time, our reputation for their good, let's remember this. It's at the epicenter of our faith. This is the why behind the what. This is why Jesus could say, what he said and expect us to follow through. This is what compelled post-resurrection followers to embrace this kingdom ethic to such an extent that it eventually captured the imagination of the empire. Let's remember this when confronted by the centurions of our world. And I love this verse, Romans 5, eight says, but God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, or in this case, centurions, Christ died for us. And then he rose from the dead and from the pages of the New Testament he glances over his shoulder at you and me and all of us and he says follow me follow me and together we will astonish the world with a brand of love that has the potential to change everything it's easier to be Christian than it is to be a follower of Jesus here's the funny thing never invited us to become a Christian he invited us to follow him so let's do that as we as we close if you want to just do me a favor bow your head close your eyes whether you're here in person or watching online this is just a moment just to take a moment close your eyes bow your head just take a moment between you and God If your week is like mine it becomes really busy and it's easy to fill my schedule with everything I don't have a lot of moments sometimes to just stop and have a moment of quiet between me and the Lord Maybe you're here in person or you're watching online right now and and you would say, you know what? Like you're talking about this know, follow, and share and, and not just knowing, but following. And I wanna encourage you, it does start though with the relationship with Jesus Christ. To know him and then to follow him. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know what? My life feels empty. I feel hopeless. I'm trying to fill my life with all these other things of the world. At the end of the day, I still feel hopeless. I wanna challenge you with something. It's because you're feeling stuff that's not Jesus. There's a void in your heart that can only be filled by a relationship with him. And so if you're here right now and you would say, that's me. I'm tired of living for myself. I wanna start living for Jesus. I want to ask him into my heart for the very first time with nobody looking around. Just lift your hand up boldly and say, that's me. I wanna pray that prayer. Just lift your hand up. Awesome. Anybody else that would say, that's me? If you're at home, feel free to lift your hand up at home as well. Very cool. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm gonna say a prayer right now. And you can repeat this prayer, something like this. It's just you connecting your heart to the very heart of God. Say, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that my sin separates me from you. But today, God, I ask you to come into my heart. I ask you to save me. I ask you to change me. I believe in your son, Jesus Christ that he died on the cross for my sins and that he beat death and rose again. I'm tired of living for me. I want to know you and then I want to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you guys just give them a round of applause? Those that made the decision today, that's an amazing decision. (laughs) The best decision of your life. Great start to 2021. And if you're here in person or watching online, do me a favor, we'd love to follow up with you, give you some next steps to taking your new faith journeys. You can go to lexcity.info, click on I Prayed, and we'll send you an email with some next steps. If you're online, you can click that button there as well. And we're really, really excited for you. And so as we close out today, just a couple of things. First of all, I think in 2021, I know for a lot of us it feels a lot like 2020 right now, right? But at the same time, I would say like, there never been a need for community greater than right now. In the life of a believer, in the life of the church, and the life of just people in general. For our own mental health, but also so that we can be invested in by other people and we can invest in other people and have that community. So I encourage you, go to Lexity.info. We'll talk more about it next week as well, but click on join a group. We have groups that meet online. We have group that, groups that meet in person. I would love for you guys to get involved in a group this semester. And don't do this Christian walk alone. And the last thing is come back next week. Pastor Brian has an amazing series called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. Six weeks here, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Great series to invite people to as well. Invite them online, invite them here in person. Thank you guys for coming. Have an amazing week. We'll see you guys all very soon.